Leo, thank you so much. That last song is one of my favorites. <clears throat> Who has ever written a paper, whether it was for school or for work? <laughs> written a paper, book report, I see some hands didn't go up. I'm assuming your shoulders are broken. <laughs> because everyone's written a paper at some point. There's a secret weapon I like to use when I'm writing a paper. Some of you I'm probably sure use it yourselves. It's a thesaurus. Wonderful book. Makes you sound smarter than you actually are you can pick a word that you never heard of. You better hope it, the teacher never heard of it either sometimes. Because if they have and it's the, not quite what you're looking for, you don't look quite as smart as you think you do. But it's a great book to help us understand context sometimes because it gives us different words to understand maybe what it is, a concept that we're looking for. We're going to be talking about faith in our series of Breaking Free. And so I wanted to get a better idea of what faith is. I looked at the dictionary. Okay, I get a dictionary definition. It's not really all that helpful. I look at scripture, because scripture has a definition. Hebrews 11.1, 1, that faith, faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Obviously, that's a really good definition. But I felt like I was something more that I, wanted, I was hoping to find. And so I decided I'll look in the thesaurus. And there's two entries for faith. One talks about community. The short definition is community. And it gives different words that describe that. We are a community of faith here at Hope, as, as is all the congregations that meeting in churches. The other one, however, the short definition was trust in something. Faith is a trust in something. And the words, some of the words used to describe that or as synonyms were acceptance, allegiance, Assurance, certainty, confidence, conviction, dependence, fidelity, hope, loyalty, reliance, and surety. That's not the whole list, but those are pretty staunch words to me. Trust in something. That's what faith is. That's what we're going to be talking about today. You see, I, I believe that this letter that Paul was writing to the Galatians was really about rebuilding trust. Trust, first, that Paul was an apostle. We heard that from Chick. That he had an authority of a message that was true and right. And anything that deviated from that message was not the gospel. But also a trust in what that it was that they, they believed. The Galatian people came to an understanding of the gospel, that their sins were paid for by Jesus Christ on the cross, and his resurrection from the grave gave them the ability to experience eternal life with God. And yet they seemed to be led astray. And so this letter is about rebuilding the trust and believing what it is that they already knew and seemed to have forgotten or pushed aside. Today we're going to be looking at Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 18, to see how this plays out. And before we get into that, and before I unpack it, let me take a moment to pray. <clears throat> Father God, thank you so much for who you are, what it is you're doing in my life, 
in each of our lives individually and corporately as a congregation, a community of faith. Father, I just pray and ask that the words that I would speak today would not be mine, but rather they would be yours. And anything that I would say today that is from me would be quickly forgotten, never to be remembered. But those things that come from you, Lord, would be quickened into our hearts and into our minds, finding fertile soil in both places, that as we leave here today, Lord, we leave changed, looking more like your Son, Jesus Christ, to a lost and dying world. It's by the power of the Holy Spirit, and in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, when I was looking at this passage, I saw it kind of in two phases, two aspects of this passage. The first chapter, or verses 1 through 5, were sort of stating a problem, almost like a thesis paper. And then the remainder of the passage, 6 through 18, was uh, Paul trying to answer that problem. And so we're going to look at it in, in that manner. Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. You can really see his frustration and anger. He starts by saying, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Christ, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn one thing, just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Now he starts by saying, you foolish Galatians. And to understand this, he's not calling them stupid. Uh, there's actually a different word for stupid that Jesus actually uses when he's talking to the Pharisees, calling them stupid. However, here, the word that's used evokes the idea that it's something you knew that you choose not to use to solve a problem. You see, you heard, you knew the gospel, and you heard another gospel being preached to you, and yet you didn't challenge it. That's foolish. When we hear false teachings, we need to be challenging of it because we do know the truth. He goes on to talk about who has bewitched you. In those days, uh, the Greek empire, really, and certainly Galatia was part of that, believed that people could have a, a spell cast on them by looking, giving them the evil eye, like, well, I see you, I'm looking at you, I'm cursing you. And yet, this is how awesome our God is and how awesome Paul is, because he addresses that cultural phenomenon in the very next part of the um, verse, before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as cru crucified, not for the sake of a curse, but for the sake of life, to give us life. I found that very interesting. They believed, but yet they may have been persecuted. Just looking at verse 4, they say, have you experienced so much in vain? It's believed that they experienced persecution when they came to a faith in Christ. And so they may have been persecuted, and yet they may have buckled under that persecution. For those of you who are visiting or may not have seen me preach up here before, something you may not know about me is that I grew up in a Jewish home. I uh, came to Christ when I was in college. And it's interesting because I felt a sense, I'll say, of persecution in this manner a number of years ago. I graduated from college and I was living back here at home and I was out on, 
on a Friday night, I think it was, there was some sort of singles function for a lot of singles in the area from different uh, churches or whatever. And what you may not know is that there are Messianic congregations, Jews who believe in Jesus that, that go to a synagogue and have basically what looks like a Jewish service. It's just the focus is on Christ. There's a couple of congregations in the area here. One that I've been to a couple of times many years ago is over in the Overbrook area. Um, but I never felt called to attend there as a regular worshiper. And I remember being out at this one evening and singles from this particular Messianic congregation were also there. And I got into a conversation with this one young man and he was challenging me. Why are you not attending the synagogue? And he was getting almost angry about it. You should be with the people of your lineage, worshiping. Fortunately, he wasn't to the point of stoning me. I don't think that would have gone over well in this day and age. But certainly, in the day and age of Paul, that's what was happening. It would rise to the level of being stoned. And so it's easy to see why sometimes some people may have buckled under the pressure. Even Paul was stoned, left for dead. Looking through verses 2 through 5, we see a lot of sarcasm and frustration, for sure. Again, it says, I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Verse 3, are you so foolish after beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Have you experienced so much in vain, if it really was in vain? So again I ask, does God give you His Spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law, or by your believing what you heard? As I was reading this, I was picturing in my mind a parent with a, a child who had made a colossal error in judgment. It was easy for me to picture, because I've done that a couple of times in my life. And I had the parent who said to me, what were you thinking? What, what was going on in your head? And I could see them saying, just tell me one thing. Were you even thinking about what you were doing at all? And, and why in the world would you think that that would have been okay? Was that one thing? Well, that sounded like more like two things at least. And even here... Paul's asking more than one thing. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or believe in what you heard? By, after beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Have you experienced so much in vain? I ask again, does God give you the Spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Just asking me one thing. One thing. And yet it seems like there's four here. He's frustrated. Because he knows the power that the gospel has for life. And he's trying to help them understand how to trust what they knew formally and believe again. Living by the blessing or living by the law? To live by the law is to live as a slave. Because the law does not justify. You are not justified by the law. It merely explains. It does not justify us before God. Brian talked to us about the anathema, living under the curse. That's what we're talking about here in living under the law. 
And so what about us? To what are you a slave in your life? Where is it that you're living under the law? Is it pride? Is it anger? Is it lust? Is it fear? These are hard questions to ask and even more uncomfortable answers to live through. But there is freedom as we look at this. Galatians 5.1 says this, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm, then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by yoke of slavery. It's almost like this is a theme verse for, for the book of Galatians. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Now, I would apologize to the, whoever's going to be preaching on Galatians 5 uh, for stealing their thunder, but I'm preaching on Galatians 5 so <laughs> at the end of next month, so I'm okay with that. You're going to hear more about that, that freedom in Christ. Faith in the gospel breaks the chains of slavery. Freedom in understanding and believing that Christ died the death that you deserved on the cross for you as the atoning sacrifice of our sin and was raised from the grave into perfect harmony with God. That transaction is what gives us life and what breaks the chains of slavery. So that's the first part. The second part is very interesting. Because Paul uses Abraham as a way of explaining to them how to overcome this problem. And I was intrigued by this because in, in Judaism, Abraham is viewed as a pillar. He's a pillar of Judaism. And what Paul has done here, he's used the pillar of Judaism to refute Judaizers. He took the very basis and foundation of what the Judaizers were talking about and said, you got it all wrong, and flipped it on its ear. They had to be shocked, thinking that he was going to use their argument to prove them wrong, and yet he did. We're going to take a look at that. In verse 17, we're not going to go there yet, but we're going to get there. He mentions that the law didn't come for another 430 years. And yet Abraham was viewed as a faithful man. Not because of the law. It wasn't written for him yet to follow, for him to know what was right, what was wrong. You could say, okay, it was written on his heart. But the fact is, they were saying that you had to follow the law, the written law. Abraham could not do that. In verse 6 and 7 we see, So Abraham... So also Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. That's all it took. He believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. So anyone who has that faith in God, who believes God, is just like Abraham. And is credited to you as righteousness, not because of something you've done. Abraham's faith is really the impetus for all people's chance to know God. Verses 8 and 9. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. 
and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. I'm going to take you through a little bit of the Old Testament. It's going to take a little bit of time, but there's an important thing that I want you to hear, a pattern I, want, I believe is going to divulge itself. We're going to look at some interactions between God and Abraham. Genesis 12, verses 2 and 3. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Genesis chapter 13, verses 14 through 16. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had parted from him, Look around from where you are, to the north and south, to the east and west. All the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. Genesis 15, verses 5 through 6 and verse 18. He took him outside and said, Look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Abraham believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. That's where Paul gets it from. You see, this was this particular instance where Paul or Paul, um, Abraham is having a conversation with, with God is during the blood covenant. Many of you, I'm sure, are familiar with that, but if you're not, basically what it was is if there was a contract to be had between two individuals, they would take animals, cut them in half, and allow their blood to flow together into a path. And the two people would walk together through the blood, creating that covenant, that if anyone should break that covenant, they would be cursed. And yet, God does that with Abraham. He tells him to get animals, cut them in half, and their blood flows together. And yet, the problem is that Abraham is not able to walk that path with God. While God can always keep the contract, Abraham, as humanity, would not be able to do that. And so God created or, or caused Abraham to fall into a deep sleep. And then God walked that path himself. Because he knew that he could keep that promise. And only he could keep that promise. But he made that covenant with Abraham. Verse 18, he goes on to say, On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I give this land from the wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates. He's, giving, he's promising land. He's promising blessing. He's promising a great nation. And yet there's no law. But Abraham is believing over and over and over again. God is giving him promise after promise after promise. God likes to use repetition for, to help us understand him. I think Abraham's getting it here. Genesis 17, verses 3 through 8, 15 and 16, and then 19 through 21 say this. Abram fell face down, and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham, 
for I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come, to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan, where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. God also said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you are no longer to call her Sarai. Her name will be Sarah. I will bless her and will surely give you a son by her. I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. Then God said, verse 19, Yes, but your, son, your wife Sarah will bear you a son and you will call him Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. And as for Ishmael, I have heard you. I will surely bless him. I will make him fruitful and will greatly increase his numbers. He will be the father of 12 rulers. Can you count the 12? You can count the 12. Can you count the dust of the earth, the sand and the seashore, stars in the sky? There's a difference there. And I will make him into a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you by this time next year. He hasn't even had a kid yet. And over and over and over again, God is promising nations will be descendant from him. Finally, Genesis 22, verses 17 and 18 says this, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possessions of the cities of their enemies, and through you, your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. This is what God says to Abraham after he's about to sacrifice Isaac. You see, Abraham believed that Isaac was going to be resurrected. He believed that God was going to bring him back from the dead because he was the only one through whom the covenant was going to pass. He was his descendant for the covenant. If he was going to sacrifice him, then God was going to bring him back. He had to. That was the promise. That's the covenant. I hope you see the pattern there of the promise that God made long before the law was introduced to Moses. Paul proves the inability to justify in verses 10 through 13 of, of our Galatians passage. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. As it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. But on the contrary, it says the person who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, on a pole. That's a Deuteronomy law right there. But see, the blood covenant was taken to a new level. In the old, God himself, by himself, walked through the blood path. 
of animals. With the new, the new covenant, God himself bled and died his own blood. There's a big difference. You think God wasn't willing to go all the way, as, as Dom likes to say? You think he wasn't about to keep his promise to you? He shed his blood for you. Paul argues that the law doesn't nullify the promise. God started a covenant with a promise, not the law. Verses 14 through 18. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. You can't just push aside the one covenant for the sake of the other. The promise isn't getting usurped by the law. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but, and to your seed, meaning one person, who is Christ. What I mean is this. The law, introduced 430 years later, does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. If the law was able to justify, why did it take so long to get it? Why not give it to Adam and Eve? Why not give it to Noah? He was righteous. Why not give it to Abraham himself? You knew he was righteous. He would, he would have followed the law. He didn't give it to him. How about Isaac? Isaac didn't get the law. How about Jacob? Jacob didn't get the law. How about Joseph? Joseph didn't get the law. All these people lived without knowing the law. And yet they were justified because of their faith. They believed God and his promises. We can trust in something because the promise wasn't just for Abraham. It was for all of us. Faith in the gospel breaks the chains of slavery. Faith in the gospel breaks the chains of slavery. Jesus has overcome. God has overcome as he promised he would. Again, I'm going to ask you, to what are you a slave? You must believe in the promise of freedom. Jesus said it is finished. The war is over. There may be skirmishes going on, but you, you can reach out. As a believer in Christ, you can reach out and say, I need your help, Lord. And he will answer. To those people who don't know Christ, who have not yet decided to, to believe that Jesus Christ was their atoning sacrifice before God, then you don't know that hope of freedom. But all it takes is a belief. Talk to somebody about that belief. Somebody here, me, somebody you know elsewhere. But talk to somebody 
what it means. Because God will work with that. It's his job to work it anyway. I don't have the power of words to tell you, to make you believe. That's up to God. Believe in the promise of freedom first for eternal life. First for eternal life. And second to overcome sin daily. We have been freed. Keep the faith. Trust in something. No, trust in someone. Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your message. I pray that it would be really deepened into our hearts and into our souls, that our faith would grow and grow and grow. When we find ourselves in, in struggle and in times of difficulty, no matter what it is, Lord, that we would reach out to you in faith and we would thank you and praise you for what it is you're doing within us. We thank you for this message, oh God. May we, may we go from here to glorify you with faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.